Father, I come before you this morning, thankful for your word, thankful for the wonderful work that it does in our hearts and lives in terms of sanctifying us, providing new light for those who are unsaved. And so we pray for those works to happen as we dig into this account. I do thank you for what this reveals about our Savior and his heart for pure and undefiled religion and really his antagonism toward corrupt religion. And so I pray, Lord, that all the wonderful truths that are contained in these verses would be revealed to your people, that you would do justice, do justice uh, to them through me. Just use me as your vessel and let this be a time really that you meet with your people. I thank you for the opportunity you've given Jake Monskis to be preaching at the Baptist Church, and we pray also for him during this time that he's preaching, Lord, that you would use him in those same ways. Pray you can be pleased with what happens here, Lord. We thank you so much for your son. We thank you for his earthly life and ministry, the great privilege of reading about him and learning what that was like as he walked the earth, and just grow our faith and love for Christ, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, good to see all of you. The title of this morning's sermon is Jesus Cleanses the Temple of Corruption. Jesus Cleanses the Temple of Corruption. When I was in Army ROTC, during one of the summers, I flew to upstate New York for air assault school, which was at Fort Drum, New York. And they stopped the school during the summers, and so we had a summer off. And so because we were close to the border, a group of us decided that we were going to visit Canada. So when we went to Canada, we ate at a restaurant, and we told the cashier that we only had U.S. dollars. Now, I did not know the conversion rate between Canadian dollars and U.S. dollars, and so we simply had to trust the cashier when he told us the cost of our meal. The only thing I know is that I had never paid that much for a meal before. But I was not in any position to argue with him because I had no familiarity with the conversion rate between Canadian and U.S. dollars, and what did we not have? This does make me feel old, but what did I not have? My cell phone, yeah, to pick it up. And okay, Google, what's the conversion rate between U.S. and, and uh, Canadian dollars? So the cashier also pointed toward the cash in his register, and he said that he did not have any U.S. money, and so he was not going to be able to give us any change for our meal. So we paid him suspecting that perhaps we were being ripped off. And when we walked out, I looked back over my shoulder and I saw him lift up the till in the register that was filled with Canadian money and then take our US dollars and put under the till on a pretty large stack of US dollars that he did in fact <laughs> have. So he could have, made, could have made change for us. So I said to him, I looked back and I said, hey, I, I thought you said that you didn't have any US dollars. I don't remember what he said in return, but it was obvious that he took advantage of us. As I studied this week, I kept thinking about that Canadian cashier ripping off his American neighbors. And he reminded me of the Jewish vendors in the temple who were doing the same thing to their Gentile neighbors, or at least they were doing the same thing until Jesus came along and put a stop to it. Go ahead and look with me at Luke 19:45. It says, Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold. Now, something interesting is you probably know that this is the second instance of Jesus driving out the, or cleansing the temple. You might actually not know that because this account is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the first cleansing in the temple is only recorded in John's gospel, in John 2, right after the wedding at Cana. So you could perhaps look at the account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the account in John, and think that they're all the same, but they're in fact two different cleansings. So this account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the second, and then the first account of the cleansing is simply in John's gospel. So what's interesting to me is the first thing that Jesus did after his ministry began was cleanse the temple. If we see the beginning of his public ministry at the wedding in Cana, then the first event after that was cleansing the temple. We also see that the first thing Jesus did after making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was cleanse the temple. So if we, took it, if we look at these two cleansings about three and a half years apart, they almost serve as bookends on Jesus' earthly ministry. So it begs the question, why would Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning and the end of his ministry? And I think it's because it reveals his heart for religion to be pure and undefiled, which this religion in the temple definitely wasn't. Your minds might go to James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James says that pure and undefiled religion is going to do two things. First, it's going to be loving. It's going to manifest itself through love. And the examples that James gives, it's not an exhaustive list, but he talks about visiting widows and orphans, which would be his way to say that true religion is going to produce loving behavior or actions. And then the second thing that true and, or pure and undefiled religion is going to do is it's going to produce holiness because he talks about religion that keeps us unspotted from the world. And so if people ever claim to be religious, but their religion produces or at least allows unholy or ungodly living, then that definitely would not be pure and undefiled religion or definitely would not be religion that pleases God. So when Jesus looked at the temple, he did not see pure and defiled. Instead, he saw corrupt religion. He saw unscrupulous vendors. Instead of seeing a religion that was lovingly serving others, he saw a religion that was exploiting and manipulating others. Let me explain what was happening. If you're with us last Sunday night, you heard Pastor Nathan explain that the temple courtyard had four different courtyards, or the temple itself had four different courtyards. The outermost court, does anyone remember what, if you're here or if you just happen to know, what was the outermost court? That was the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as Gentiles could go, but at least you could say they had access to that, to that part of the temple. So the outermost court was the court of the Gentiles, and this is where the cleansing took place. The other three courtyards, next would be the court of the women, then third would be the court of Israel, or also called the court of men. And then finally, there was the court of the priests, which, as the name implies, only the priests could enter. Now, the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court, being the only area of the temple that non-Jews could enter, would be viewed as a place of evangelism. If there was a part of the temple that was given over to outreach, it would be that outermost court where the Gentiles would visit. And so we say that Jesus cleansed the temple, but it's important to understand that this is not a cleansing that's going on inside the temple. It was going on when Jesus goes into the temple, which we'll see next week, that's when he starts teaching. The cleansing, turning over, just like in the, in the other account, turning over the money changers' tables, putting a whip together, or, you know, cords together to make a whip and chasing them out, that all took place outside the temple in this courtyard. Because this was the area accessible by the Gentiles, God expected the Jews were going to show a special favor toward them so that, that those Gentiles would be enticed to abandon their pagan or idolatrous ways, the false gods they're worshiping, and then begin worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews would witness to their Gentile neighbors, tell them about the Hebrew God, and then those Gentiles would hopefully pros become proselytes or they would convert over to Judaism. Unfortunately, the exact opposite of that is pretty much what's happening at the temple because the Jews were exploiting these Gentiles who were coming. Warren Wearsby said, instead of praying for the Gentiles, the priests were praying on the Gentiles. And this brings us to lesson one. Jesus cleansed the temple part one because Jews were ripping off Gentiles. Jesus cleansed the temple because Jews were ripping off Gentiles. There were primarily two Jewish groups in the courtyard who were ripping off Gentiles, and that's the money changers and the vendors. Let's talk about each of those. The money changers and the vendors. So according to, you don't have to turn there, but according to Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, the Mosaic law required that everyone pay a temple tax of half of a shekel. So, like me going to Canada with the wrong currency, many Gentiles were going to the temple with the wrong currency. And the currency that the Gentiles would bring with them would not be accepted at the temple. They would have coins that would have images of pagan emperors on them, and so they would be turned away from paying the tax. So, there were money changers who were in the courtyard who would say, well, we'll take your, your Gentile coins 
and we will convert them to Jewish currency, and then you'll be able to conduct business or pay the temple tax. But when the money changers exchanged money, they would do so at exorbitant exchange rates. But these Gentiles, being naive and being particularly zealous to be able to worship the Lord, were still willing to exchange or be ripped off so that they could pay this tax. Second, there were animal vendors. So Gentiles come to the temple, they might not have an animal to sacrifice, and so the vendors would sell them animals that were overpriced. Or the other thing that would happen would eat, is that even if Gentiles would come to the temple with an animal, the vendors would tell them that their animals were not acceptable or were not approved. The vendors would examine them, tell the worshipers that they did not meet the standard, and then they would try to sell them these overpriced animals. Gentiles didn't know better, so they're perfect victims for these unscrupulous Jews. And so just imagine what this looks like. You've got Gentiles, and your heart has to break for them, who abandon their pagan ways, their, um, let's, like we think of baby Christians. They're brand new to Judaism. They know nothing except that they want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're sincere, they're zealous, and they know that if they want to worship this God, that they must go to his house or his temple. And so they go to this temple, but then there's a Jewish vendor who says, oh, you know, it's so wonderful that you're here. God does want a relationship with you. He does love even the Gentiles. But I hate to have to tell you this. I can tell by looking that your animal is not acceptable. You see, according to our law, we can only bring our best to God, and this doesn't meet the expectation that's described in the Mosaic law. But today's your lucky day, because you can see I've got this whole what, what, flock, stock, or group of animals I can sell you. See, I clearly don't know much about farming. And so I've got all these animals, and I can sell you as many as you want, and you're guaranteed that all of these meet the standards set in the Mosaic Law for sacrifice. And this sort of behavior, it was strictly forbidden in the Mosaic Law, Exodus 22:21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19:34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love, listen to this, you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, he wasn't just showing his heart for pure and undefiled religion, he was also showing his heart for the Gentiles. He saw them being abused and exploited. And I'll share something else with you that I think is going on. I say think because I can't say for sure that this is the case, but if we consider context, I think we can indirectly assume this. What is only a few days away? What's only a few days away? We've talked about it in the last few sermons. Passover. Passover is only a few days away. More than likely, with the triumphal entry on Sunday, this is probably Monday that Jesus cleanses the temple. And so Passover, three or four days away, would be the busiest time of the year. The courtyard is going to be filled with Gentiles who have come long distances to celebrate Passover. And what are all of these Gentiles going to need? They're going to need lambs. Exodus 12, 3, tell the congregation of Israel, that on the, this is Passover described in the Old Testament, tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And I just want you to remember one thing from this verse. This is the 10th day of the month. Just hold on to that for a moment. They're not going to kill or sacrifice this lamb yet. Exodus 12:5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. And if you just take those two requirements into consideration, that it's an animal without blemish, and a, or three, I suppose, a male and a year old, can you see how just using those three requirements, the vendors would take advantage of the Gentiles who came with lambs and say, you know, I'm looking at your lamb. Oh, that's a blemish right there. I can see it. Yep, that's a blemish. This is not, this is not without blemish. You can't sacrifice it. Are you absolutely sure? You, you think it's only a year old? 
Are you absolutely sure about that? Because I've got lambs here that are under a year old, and so I can sell you one of these ones. And so just imagine how they're taking advantage of these very naive but sincere Gentiles. Exodus 12, 6, you're going to keep this lamb until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So if they're going to sacrifice these lambs on the 14th day of the month and they're going to get these lambs on the 10th day of the month, Jesus very well could have cleansed the temple on the 10th day of the month. Or he very well could have cleansed the temple when the greatest number of Gentiles had been coming to the courtyard to purchase their lambs. And so if these vendors know that all of these Gentiles are coming to buy lambs, what are they seeing? Dollar signs. They could have hundreds of thousands of Gentiles in Jerusalem who wouldn't normally be there. It's reasonable that these vendors could have made more money in these few days leading up to Passover than many other months combined. And so this is like the greatest day of their lives, financially speaking. And then what happens? Jesus comes in, and he just destroys their business. He drives, it says he drives them out. He kicks them out of the courtyard, all of these vendors, and prevents them from doing this. So right when they think that they're going to start lining their pockets, Jesus comes in, he's turning over their tables. That's what Matthew, it's, that's not recorded in Luke's account, but in the parallel account in Matthew 21, 12, it says Jesus overturned tables and chairs. We're not told here that Jesus made a whip, but considering that he did that at the first cleansing, we do have a biblical precedent for it. So it's possible that he could have done that again, but whatever the case, Jesus did whatever he needed to do to get these vendors out of the courtyard, and for many of them, I'm sure it meant losing lots of money. Now, as I was reading about this this week and imagining what it was like, I couldn't help but think that we see much of the same thing today with false teachers. We ha imagine who, who are some of the most vulnerable or most susceptible people to being taken advantage of or exploited? It's new Christians, or you could say religious people, right? They're sincere, they have this zeal. And greedy people, false teachers, love to exploit them. I mean, you read, in particular, Second Peter, read Jude, and this is largely what they're condemned for, their love of money and for taking advantage of people financially. They're going to offer a blessing, a healing, God's favor, if you give them some amount of money. It's something I've been blessed. Jim's been teaching this Sunday school class showing some videos because our, our young people, my children included, grow up in this fairly sheltered, conservative environment, and they might not even be that aware that there are individuals who are out there talking about, if you give this much money, then you're going to be blessed in this way in return. I just saw this video the other day, no joke, you can look it up, Kenneth Copeland, probably uh, one of the premier examples of what we're talking about here is, is uh, administering communion, I would say in this blasphemous way, Kenneth Copeland slices his hand, or cuts his hand, and then he says that he mixes it with the communion wine so that his blood is mixed with Jesus's blood. And then he walks around on stage talking about now he, how he now has Jesus's blood flowing through his veins. Uh, Justin Peters, in talking about it, said, he's, and he said, I'm not exaggerating, but he, he looks like a man who's demon-possessed. I would not be surprised if, if Kenneth Copeland was demon-possessed to be doing the things he did. Well, why would someone want to say that they have Jesus's blood running through their veins? I'm convinced it's so that he can make more money. It's exactly what we're talking about here, that he would believe he'd have this greater credibility with people to say something like this. They'd be more inclined to want to give him money if his, if his blood is mingled with Jesus's blood. And so it looks different today. We don't have people in temple courtyards, but their ministries, if you want to call them that, and I use that word uh, loosely, can invade our home through radio, through television, through the internet, the false teaching. We're blessed to have incredible teaching available. I mean, just this morning, you know, I'm in getting ready for church on my phone, just hit play and just listening to a sermon. I, you know, walk down the stairs into the living room and there's a, a sermon playing and we have them that accessible to us. 
But at the same time, there can also be incredible amounts of false teaching that is available to us. And so we need to be on guard against that. And my suspicion is, as much as Jesus hated these greedy people that would exploit others in his day, that there would be that same hatred for exploiting people in our day. Look specifically at what Jesus said to them as he condemns them. Verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus quotes two Old Testament verses here, and I want to remind you of something. I'll make it brief because I have mentioned this before. There's a tendency to think that when an Old Testament verse is quoted in the New Testament, that that Old Testament verse is quoted simply because of the way it sounds or simply because it captures the thought or the idea that the New Testament author wants to communicate but the context of that Old Testament verse, when it's plucked up, is irrelevant. And that's completely wrong. One of the main rules of Bible interpretation, or what, you know, if you want to say, what are the top three rules of Bible interpretation? Context, 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 right? And so the idea that New Testament writers, or Jesus himself, would use verses from the Old Testament but disregard the context would then make the New Testament authors the worst violators of one of the primary rules of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation, that you must consider the context. And so the truth is that Old Testament verses are actually quoted not independent of their context, but because of their context. And this brings us to lesson two. We will come back to lesson one. Lesson two, Old Testament verses were quoted because of their context. Here's how I want to invite you to view Old Testament verses. It's the tip of the iceberg. When you see an Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament, that Old Testament verse is the tip of the iceberg. The context for that verse is the, everything that's below the surface. And I want you to see that with these two Old Testament verses that Jesus quoted. Why don't you go ahead and turn first to Isaiah 56. You can mark your spot in Luke. We'll turn back to it. I would even go so far as to say that we must understand the context of Old Testament verses to fully understand the New Testament account they're quoted in. Let me say that one more time, or let me say it the other way. If you're reading the New Testament and you want to understand that account or passage, and you see an Old Testament verse quoted, you must understand the context of that Old Testament verse to fully understand or get as much out of that New Testament account. I'm not saying you have to turn to the Old Testament and study out this chapter in depth, but I am saying you'll get much more out of that New Testament passage by understanding the Old Testament versus context. This first quote is Isaiah 56. Do your Bibles have a heading for this chapter? Isaiah 56, do your Bibles have a heading? Salvation for the Gentiles, good, or salvation for foreigners, or blessings for all nations. Just seeing the heading for this chapter, can you already see the relationship to Luke 19? Isaiah 56 is about God's concern for the Gentiles, and Jesus cleansed the temple because of his concern for the Gentiles. The theme of this chapter, not surprisingly because of the heading, is God's concern for Gentiles or for foreigners. Look at verse 3, Isaiah 56, 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, or let not the foreigner who has tried to join with God's people, say, the Lord will surely separate me, or the Lord, don't let the foreigner say this, that the Lord will surely separate me or keep me from his people, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. So God is saying that foreigners or Gentiles should not be saying that God is going to keep them from joining with his covenant people, the Israelites or the Jews. Gentiles would be tempted to think that God will not allow them to be part of his covenant people. And so God says, don't be saying that. If Gentiles wanted to convert to join the Jews, then they could do that, assuming that they would be circumcised and go through, turn from their false religion, then they could become part of God's people. Look at verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. So again, God's talking about foreigners 
and he says that these foreigners are going to be able to join him or minister to him or serve him now guess what happens when foreigners or gentiles want to join god or serve god or minister to god and come to the temple because of that desire but then jewish vendors make them feel like what they're doing is wrong well then they end up feeling or believing the opposite of what god says here they're prevented from believing that they can join god's people they feel like they can't minister to him they've got vendors that are saying you're not doing this well enough this is not correct you don't have the right animals you don't have the right money and so they were violators of this verse now look at verse 7 this is the verse that jesus quoted when he cleansed the temple he says these and this is gentiles these are these gentiles i will bring to my holy mountain i will make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings the gentiles burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples so when god says these i will bring to my holy mountain the these are the gentiles or foreigners and god says he'll make them joyful in his house of prayer referring to the temple we know that's we know the house of prayer refers to the temple because it says that later in the verse but notice god says there referring to gentiles their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar but the jewish vendors were causing these gentiles to believe that their sacrifices and offerings were not acceptable and so hopefully we can see how when jesus quoted this verse isaiah 56 7 that's really the tip of the iceberg the context for it helps us appreciate the context being god's concern for the gentiles helps us appreciate even more why god why jesus would or god in the flesh would pull this verse up out of the old testament the next place turn to the right to jeremiah 7. one book to the right after isaiah's jeremiah <clears throat> and while you turn there i'll just share this with you if you remember i thought it was nice providentially to be able to look at jeremiah again after talking about him last week because you might remember last week i told you that jeremiah is a type of christ i don't want to go into everything that i talked about last week if you want to hear more and you missed that sermon you can go back and listen to it but we talked about jeremiah being a type or shadow of christ so much so that jeremiah's weeping over jerusalem is a type or foreshadowing of jesus's weeping over jerusalem jeremiah sees the babylonians coming sieging jerusalem destroying the city the temple and then taking hundreds of thousands of jews captive and then jesus weeps over jerusalem because he sees rome coming sieging jerusalem breaking into the city destroying the city destroying the temple and taking thousands of jews slaughtering thousands of jews and taking thousands of other captive so what happened in jeremiah's day i believe prefigures foreshadows what happens jesus's day jeremiah's weeping prefiguring or foreshadowing serving as a type of jesus's weeping well now we get to see one more way that jeremiah serves as a type of christ and this is it jeremiah cried out against the sinful activity that he saw happening at the temple in his day and jesus cried out against the sinful activity he saw happening in his day you don't have to turn there but in jeremiah 26 the jews threatened to murder jeremiah because of the message that he delivers here let me say that one more time in jeremiah 26 the jews threatened to murder jeremiah for the temple message that he delivers here when we turn to luke 19 guess what we're going to see we're going to see jews who want to murder jesus because of his temple message that he delivers so just one more way that it seems jeremiah prefigures christ now look at verse 1 jeremiah 7 verse 1. the word that came to jeremiah from the lord stand in the gate of the lord's house which is the temple stand in the gate of the temple proclaim there this word so say this say hear the word of the lord all you men of judah who enter these gates to worship the lord so this is a nice window into the way old testament prophets ministered or got their messages out they're burdened that's why sometimes prophets it says that they have a burden or an or oracle and that god gives them 
and then they must go someplace to deliver this message. And in this account, Jeremiah was supposed to go to the gate or the entrance of the temple or the entrance of the Lord's house and notice whom Jeremiah was supposed to deliver this message to. Who's he supposed to deliver this message to? Not Assyrians, not Babylonians, not Moabites, not Ammonites, but the Jews, God's covenant people who are going to the temple. So it looks like Jeremiah, if I had to make it present day, is going to start yelling at people who are going to church. So how would you like to be yelled at when you're walking into the church? When I think about Jeremiah doing this, two people came to mind. First, John the Baptist, when he was yelling at Jews to repent. And then second, Jeremiah looks like that sort of stereotypical, crazy street preacher. Being a prophet was not easy. It was, I, I don't know that there were many more difficult ministries or things God called people to than being an Old Testament prophet. Look at Jeremiah's message to them in verse 3. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, or God says, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. I will let you live here. The word amend is synonymous with what? What do you think? Amend is synonymous with what? Which is the primary message of the prophets, if you could summarize it in one word. <laughs> what, what is it? Repent. Yes, amend or change is synonymous with repent. Jeremiah tells him to repent. He'll say the same thing in verse 5. And then at the end of the verse, God says he will not rip them out of the land if they will repent. They can remain there. But because they did not repent, Babylon came and ripped them out of the land. Look at verse 4. Jeremiah says, don't trust in these deceptive words. These were the deceptive words the people were trusting in. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And I want you to notice the word trust. That word trust conveys the strong sense of security the Jews had because of the temple or because of their temple attendance, or we could say because of their religious activity. They thought that God would never judge them because the temple was there or because they visited the temple or because they were religious at the temple or all of the above. But they were looking to the temple and believing that there was no way. They, and what did God do? He actually destroyed his own house. He let Babylon come in and destroy the temple when he saw the religious activity of the day being so corrupt, similar to Jesus. Basically, they thought being religious was going to save them, just like the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought. So they had more of this superstitious view of the temple, like it's a rabbit's foot or it's this good luck charm. And as long as they stay active with it, then it doesn't matter how they live, which is why in the following verses, we don't have time to look at all of it, Jeremiah goes on to tell them that they must repent, because it's not just about going to church, it's about how you live when you're outside the church. It's about repenting of your sin, following Christ, not just about the religious activity that we'd go through in Jeremiah's day and in, in our day. So we have catchphrases, and this seemed to be one of the catchphrases that the Jews would use. Jeremiah would preach to them that they must repent, and their response was, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I suspect Jeremiah probably got tired of hearing the people so often say the temple of the Lord in response to his messages to them to repent. And it's repeated three times to show you just how much the people were saying this. Then verse 5, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute judgment, one with another. So again, Jeremiah tells them to repent. And then notice this, they're supposed to exercise judgment. This brings our minds to the temple in Jesus's day because the vendors and money changers definitely were not being just, or they definitely were not executing ju justice. Instead, they were taking advantage of people. Verse 6, if you don't oppress the sojourner, which is exactly what the vendors in Jesus' day were doing in the temple. They were oppressing the sojourners, the Gentiles. He says, don't oppress the fatherless widow, don't shed innocent blood, and if you do not go after other gods, to your own harm. Now, we don't have time to read all the verses, but look at verse 11. This is the verse Jesus quoted, or the other verse Jesus quoted when cleansing the temple. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers or den of thieves in your eyes 
Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So a den of thieves was a hideout. It was a place robbers would go after committing crimes that allowed them to feel very safe or secure following their criminal activity. And the idea is that they thought they'd avoid judgment because of this den that they were hiding in. Like the Jews thought they would avoid punishment because of the temple that they were hiding in. Some people still do this today, but with the church instead of the temple. They're convinced that as long as they go to church, then they're good people and they will be spared God's judgment. But God's judgment comes from our lifestyles. We don't go to church to be saved. We go to church because we are saved. We don't go to church because we believe that's what's going to bring us into relationship with Christ. We go to church because we are in relationship with Christ and we want to worship him. We avoid judgment by repenting and believing, not by religious activity. That's the message of all works-based religions. That was the message that the Jews believed in Jeremiah's day, and that's the message that works-based religions believe and preach today. Now, with that background, turn back to Luke 19. Now that you understand these two verses Jesus quoted, and look at verse 46 with me one more time. So Luke 19, 46. Jesus said, it is written, so you know he's quoting the Old Testament, my house shall be a house of prayer, that's Isaiah 56, 7, but you have made it a den of robbers, that's Jeremiah 7, 11. And now that we understand the context for Jesus cleansing the temple, I want you to think about something. Over the last few weeks, I've been explaining why the Jews would worship Jesus or celebrate him as the Messiah at the triumphal entry, but only five days later call out for his crucifixion. And I don't, don't think I've spent a lot of time on it. Hopefully it's become abundantly clear that it's because he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted him to deal with Rome. He's going to deal with sin and death. If you have questions about that, just ask me after service or you can go back and listen to the previous sermons. But here's what I want you to think about. The Jews celebrate Jesus at the triumphal entry, right? How long do you think it took for them to turn on him? I mean, we, so triumphal entry on Sunday, on Friday they're calling out for his crucifixion. But they turned on him before Friday, didn't they? So what day do you think that was? How early after the triumphal entry? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Here's my suspicion, I'll tell you. I think they turned on him right after the triumphal entry. Because if Jesus was the Messiah that they wanted the Messiah who's going to deal with Rome or overthrow Rome, when Jesus makes his triumphal entry, where is he not going to go and where is he going to go? If Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews want, he's going to go to Fort Antonia, the Roman garrison where the Roman army is stationed. Or he's going to go to Pilate's house because Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea or over this area of Israel. They're expecting Jesus to do that. They're expecting him to go and deal with Rome. Do you have any idea how shocking it must have been for the Jews when Jesus has nothing to do with the Romans and he goes straight to the temple, not to worship, but to overthrow the, not Rome, oppression, but Jewish religion? It must have been an absolutely staggering, shocking, and outrageous event for them. All they are expecting is for him to go and get rid of Rome, and he goes into the temple and does this. Instead of attacking Rome, he attacks money changers. Instead of overthrowing Roman oppression, he's overthrowing tables with money and, and uh, where business is being conducted. Jesus was not concerned about the people's relationship with Rome. That's one of the major points from this. He was concerned about their relationship with God. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. Jesus cleansed the temple part two because he cared more about religious corruption than Roman oppression. Jesus cleansed the temple because he cared more about religious corruption than Roman oppression. 
He didn't go after the Romans, their buildings, or their institutions. Instead, he went after the Jews, their building, the temple, and their institution, Judaism. He doesn't attack the Romans, he attacks the religious leaders. He wants to get rid of this religious corruption. And here's what else is interesting. If Jesus wanted to get rid of religious corruption, he wouldn't have had to look far. Rome is about as idolatrous or pagan as you can get. So my point is, if Jesus wants to get rid of religious corruption, he can look anywhere and see all of the Roman idolatry, all of the Roman paganism that had infiltrated when Rome oppressed Judea. And he did nothing with it. Instead, he went right after Judaism. So Jesus was not trying to destroy all religious corruption. He wanted to deal with the Jewish corruption, his people. And it makes me think of 1 Peter 4, 17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So we could think that if God was going to come and perform, that he's going to deal with maybe Hinduism or, or Buddhism or Taoism or whatever the prominent religion is. I don't think that, or at least he's not going to begin there. He's going to begin in his house with his people who have the highest accountability. That's us. That's where he's going to want to see pure and undefiled religion. And I want to ask you this. How do you think the Jews felt about Jesus ruining their big payday? Well, they already hate him, so now they're going to want to now they're going to hate him even more and want to murder him even more. And you can see that in the next verse, Luke 19, 47. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes, the principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy him. If they already wanted to kill him, I cannot imagine how much more they wanted to kill him after he went into the temple and did this. Luke 16, 14 says the Pharisees were lovers of money. When Jesus comes in and destroys their biggest business, on the biggest day of the year, their profit, what was most valuable to them, they could only grow in their hatred. And here's what stood out to me. Jesus knew how much they wanted to murder him, but he stayed in the temple teaching anyway. And this brings us to the last part of lesson one. Jesus cleansed the temple part three and then remained in the heart of enemy territory. Jesus cleansed the temple and then remained in the heart of enemy territory. So I start a sermon. Actually, this was a unique week. This past week, I got to start next Sunday's sermon yesterday. That doesn't happen often, but I had the time yesterday. This sermon was finished to start on next Sunday's sermon. But for the, usually I start on Monday or maybe Sunday afternoon. I'll, I'll just be reading. But because I'll start on Monday, I'll have this whole week to think about the sermon. And different things come to mind. Like I told you at the beginning of the sermon, one of the things that came to mind was that time we were in Canada and we had the wrong money and we feel like this money changer ripped us off, right? So I kept thinking about that all week. Well, there's another thing that I kept, I kept thinking about, and this is not a commentary on uh, war movies and which ones you can or can't watch or watch with a bit angel or your conscience will have to determine what, what you, uh, the Lord allows you to, to, to want to watch. But I used to be super into war movies and you have good guys and you have bad guys. And the bad guys want to kill the good guys, but the good guys, they just keep moving closer to enemy territory. No matter what the bad guys do, the, the good guys just keep encroaching on them. And then often there's this one moment that the good guys enter enemy territory. You know, the good guys were in danger before, but the moment that they enter enemy territory, the moment that, you know, they cross those lines to go into enemy territory now they're even in greater danger they've reached another level of deadliness and i was thinking about that because it's like jesus is that good guy <laughs> you know he keeps fighting the bad guys he keeps fighting the religious leaders they want to murder him but he keeps moving closer to enemy territory and if you wonder well when, when did jesus start moving toward enemy territory believe it or not don't know jokes about how many years ago this would have been, but Luke 9, 51. Whenever, we, whenever I taught Luke 9, 51, that's when Jesus started moving toward enemy territory because it says, Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, which means crucified, 
he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So since Luke 9, 51, Jesus has been heading toward enemy territory. With the triumphal entry, he has entered, or with the cleansing of the temple, he has entered enemy territory. And he stays there. He crosses into enemy lines. He goes into the temple. The religious leaders have wanted to murder him for who knows how many sermons now. And he doesn't just go in and cleanse the temple. He cleanses it, and then he stays there. He stays behind enemy lines, knowing that his life is in danger. We read right there in the verse, verse 47. They're seeking to destroy him. The Sanhedrin, we'll see this probably next week, more than likely gathered together the scribes, the chief priests, the elders to plot ways, trying to find what, I mean, this is why they had to use Judas, right? They couldn't seem to do it on their own, not for lack of effort, but they're plotting his death. And Jesus just hangs out there. He just stays in the temple. But now I need to contradict myself because I want to ask you this. Was Jesus really in more danger when he remained in the temple? Was Jesus really in more danger when he was in the temple? No, he wasn't. Because who's sovereign? Who's in control? Not the religious leaders. Look at Luke 19, 48. They did not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, don't be misled by this verse. You're reading something physical, but there's spiritual behind it. It looks like, here's what I mean, it looks physically like the religious leaders can't do anything to Jesus because he's surrounded by all these people. That's not why, literally, they couldn't do anything to Jesus. They couldn't do anything to Jesus because his time had not come. When you look at this spiritually, they couldn't do anything to Jesus. I mean, at that time, it's close at hand. It's much closer than it was. Now it's days away. But it has not arrived yet. And he's following God's divine timeline. You might remember a sermon I preached a few weeks ago about that course that Jesus was on, moving from one obstacle or one event to the next, following the divine timeline that his father set for him. That's why when they tried to take Jesus and make him king, he escaped. When they tried to throw Jesus off the cliff in Nazareth, he escaped. When they tried to stone him, he escaped. He's following the divine timeline. He's going to die, but he's not going to die before God has determined he will die. And he's not even going to become king until he's going to escape when they try to make him king because it's not time for him yet to become king. So he's not going to go before his father's will and he's not going to lag behind. And so he's in the temple, but there's no threat. There's no greater danger here for him because his father is sovereign over what transpires in his earthly life. The truth is the religious leaders wanted to murder Jesus, but they couldn't, not because of the crowds, but because it wasn't God the Father's plan for them to do so yet. Let me conclude with this. Every sermon, we're getting closer to Jesus' crucifixion. It's going to be the theme leading up to his death. It is going to repeatedly, we're going to reach the point where every single sermon, I'm not exaggerating, is going to look like man, or let's say Satan, has gotten the upper hand. You're going to look at what's transpiring, and it's going to look like the devil is becoming victorious through these satanic individuals that he's using. But I want you to know that God was always in control. Acts 4.27. Listen to this. Truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is almost like an exhaustive list of everyone who was gathered against Jesus to murder him. Just one more time, it says, In this city, Jerusalem, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There's Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. Is there, is there anyone that doesn't fit into one of those groups? So he's making the point in this prayer that everyone wants to murder Jesus. These are all the people responsible for his death. That's how it sounds. The next verse, Acts 4.28, we read something wonderful. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
So it sounds like all these people are going to murder Jesus, and in the very next verse we're told all they were doing was what God had predestined for them to do. Or in this way that could almost become uncomfortable for us, it's beyond our full understanding, the wickedest people were still fulfilling God's plan of redemption or being used by him. What looked like Satan's greatest victory was actually Satan's greatest defeat. Colossians 2.15 at the cross where he disarmed principalities. The cross which looked like Satan's victory ended up being his defeat. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. Well, it doesn't say Jesus in Isaiah 53, but you know, we know that's who it is. God the Father has put Jesus to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. I mean, this verse goes to incredible lengths to show who was in charge of Jesus' death. It was not Judas, it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't Caiaphas, it wasn't Ananias, it wasn't Herod, it was no Gentile, it was no Jew. It says, the Lord crushed him, the Lord put him to grief, God made his soul an offering for guilt. Jesus was not the victim of any circumstance. He was not caught by jealous, greedy religious leaders. Everything that happened to Christ was part of a plan that was orchestrated by the Father. And why is that? Because of you. Because God loves you. Because he wants a relationship with you. Because he was willing to punish his son for your sins. So God was willing to do all that to Jesus so that he would not have to do it for you. All of this was orchestrated by the Father so that we could be saved, so that his wrath would not have to be poured out on us. It is not religious work that saves us, but here's what is required of us. What is required is repenting and believing. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be at front after service and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you so much for the plan of redemption that you orchestrated, that your fingerprints are on with Christ. No matter how wickedly things look like they were transpiring on earth, we thank you that it was all unfolding according to your plan as you brought your son to his death in our place. We thank you so much for that reality, Lord. If there's anyone here who hasn't repented and believed in Jesus, we pray that that's something you'd bring about in their hearts, and we ask all this in his name. Amen.